very much, Ole. I really I feel really privileged and honored <coughs> to uh, to be asked to uh, present like this. Uh, I'm just going to start with a little story, actually a little bit about that. Uh, in the mid-11th century, the Icelandic skald Snegle Halvi came back from ha having visited Denmark, and he reported that uh, people there had a vastly inferior knowledge of uh, poetry, barely able to recognize the imperfections in the skaldic meter at all. Um, and I'm, I'm a Danish guy. <laughs> I grew up in a pig farm. I know that also sounds a little bit like a cliche, Danish guy, pig farm. Uh, and I remember in the, at the University of Copenhagen, Professor Bangor actually described how the, the skaldic poetry was probably um, uh, the most complex form of oral poetry that humanity has ever produced. And I did give it a shot. I didn't succeed. In fact, I uh, gave up and decided to become uh, a completely different kind of scholar, uh, leaning towards um, anthropology. And uh, uh, I did most of my work on uh, uh, an, an Afro-Brazilian religion called Candomblé, a religion that's uh, similar to voodoo in many ways. But here, uh, when I'm here in Sneklo Halvis land, which is in my world, it's a little bit like a very noble place of North European intellectual tradition. I do feel a little bit intimidated. I feel Snegle Halvi looking at me a little bit. Uh, so um, uh, do go easy on me uh, and my imperfections in, in this case, not skaldic, but um, poetic meter. <laughs> uh, because, uh, yeah, I don't know. As a Danish guy speaking about the Verlusbar, um a poem that Professor Van Gogh said was probably the greatest poem ever written, actually. He said that. Um, maybe he just had a little bit of a tendency to be um, superlative like that. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit more the kind of uh, scholar who knows how to kill chickens and play trance drums. And, um, yes, but that also means that my, my uh, perspective on these things is based on my enculturation in, um, in, 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 in a kind of religion that is actually... <laughs> now you just got a little taste of what Brazil also sounds like. You're supposed to be able to only uh, <laughs> hear it. Let me see if I can... Uh, like that. So... It, it's my enculturation in a, in a kind of religion that in many ways are quite similar to the pre-Christian Nordic religion. That is kind of what gives me an angle, I think, on, on, uh, on some of this stuff. Uh, and I approached these Afro-Brazilian well, priestesses uh, from the position of a kind of scholarship where you, uh, where you are more... Uh, actually trying to learn from their knowledge, a kind of scholarship that makes it available to listen to their knowledge rather than describe it from our perspective. So I feel that, I've, that the, the, the kind of knowledge that I'm building is actually very informed by uh, the kind of people that, you, that, you're, that you're looking at here. And their perspective is one of counter-modernity. Uh, the Brazilian descendants of enslaved Africans they have constructed a culture uh, being exposed to abysmal levels of uh, cruelty in the encounter with Eurocentric uh, modernity. Uh, and that is the reason that they have built cultural resilience to, towards the knowledge 
the knowledge hegemon, you could say, of the uh, ontological world. They built spaces in this religion where, uh, where reality is, is made a little bit different. That's a, um, we are used to a re reality where humans don't get possessed by deities that would just like to come and smoke cigars and uh, drink rum and flirt with the girls and that kind of stuff. That is our normal reality. They have built a reality in the encounter with modernity where that kind of thing can still be there. You can still have a pot that is filled with objects and that is literally the body of a powerful deity. And, and they have built this in a way where this kind of reality is very current, it's very contemporary. This is the trickster deity from their religion, uh, very similar to Loki from uh, the pre-Christian Nordic religion. And you will see that these people, they were wearing hip-hop clothes, a back-turned cap, and bling hanging around their necks. These are contemporary uh, ways of, of, uh, of uh, re representing these kind of deities. So this is kind of my background to this stuff. Um, and my research is focused on how they, how they do that. How, the, how do they make that counter-modernity happen uh, in, in that way, like that. Um, cool. Uh, and, and they, by the way, they have this religion that, yes, looks very much like pre-Christian, uh, pre-Christian Nordic religion. There's a thunder god with a big axe. There's an uh, all-father god that's connected to the world pillar. There's this trickster god I just described that starts everything by his trickery and love goddesses with big boobies. It, it's that it, it's it's a similar kind of of uh, of religion. Cool. So um, and so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to work on animist counter modernity in the way that we are reflecting on our own past and our own cultural history. Um, and I, I'm doing this partly with inspiration from from what I learned from the priestesses in Brazil, but also from the perspective of this new animist theory and these ontological turn thinking and, and that kind of stuff. And the point is that in order to recover animist ways of knowing, relational ways of knowing on the premises of modernity, uh, yeah, that's kind of the, what I'm trying to, to do. And Modernity, I, um, I define or I, I look at a one specific aspect of modernity, and that is the way that it's defined by the uh, scholar Graham Harvey, that it is a separatist agenda, the only partly successful ongoing attempt to deanimate matter and disembody minds. Right? Deanimate matter and disembody minds. Deities don't come and drink rum with us, and they don't, they're not embodied in in pots with things in them, right? Now, uh, uh, yeah, and this reading of modernity, I think that has a, uh, a bearing on what we can use old animist stories for when we try to understand ourselves in the Anthropocene. So this was just a little bit of background. Um, my basic point is that st stories, like, for instance, the Volus Bar, the Ragnarok, other kinds of stories, might be able, we, we, maybe we can use these stories to heal or mend the connections that have been ruptured by modernity. By the way, I'm using this image as, as an image of modernity. He is very distant from the world that is veiled behind 
clouds down here. It's usually associated with uh, romanticism, this image, but, but I, I think it's a very strong image on, on our relating with nature. If he had been an animist, he would have been somewhere down in that landscape, in the muck, learning, figuring out what it is to actually kill a rabbit and pull its entrails out and eat it, and also figure out how does that work if you're an animist and you see yourself as kinship group with a rabbit. And th th there are problems in that that you need to, you need to work on, right? Um, cool. <clears throat> there is a sense in many animist worldviews that the interconnectedness on the world, of the world, which the world in a sense rests on, can be compromised. It not, it's not just a given, it's not just there. Um, and you probably see this in many uh, uh, religious perceptions of the world. In the Nordic cosmology, there are war worms gnawing at the roots of the Yggdrasil. In, in Jewish cosmology, there's the idea of the klifot, the, the, the spirit of God is shattered in the world and it needs to be healed somehow. Um, so so there, there is this idea that, that first interconnectedness is, uh, is, is potentially under threat and humans have a role in upholding interconnectedness of, uh, of the world. And that is very ingrained, I think, in, in many forms of, uh, of animist knowledge that you, feel, uh, that you see around the world. And I very much think that you see this in North European animist tradition. Uh, for instance, you see it in uh, seasonal animism, that, which I've worked with quite a lot, these, these ideas about how humans are participating in the changing of the seasons in order to make the world work in the way it's supposed to be, where there's a nice and, and giving space for humans to exist in. Um, and, um, but you also see the, the um, uh, yes, so this is, an, this is an important thing, this reciprocity, humans participating in that reciprocity which upholds the uh, harmonious world, basically. Um, and I believe that you also see this uh, analysis of lost interconnectedness in, in, uh, in fairy tales, actually, uh, and folklore and so on. Uh, you, bo you both see the uh, catastrophic effects of lost interconnectedness. You see sometimes uh, modern attempts at naturalizing the rupture, and you also sometimes see uh, attempts at recovering uh, lost connectedness. You look like you want to say something to me, Ola. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, and and that, this is something that you sometimes see reflected in, in, uh, in fairy tales. Uh, this underwater statue here is placed in front of the Danish parliament, and it's actually an, uh, a statue of the, the, the sea spirit man who has been deserted by his human wife. And the man and, and his, his children are calling for the human wife to return to relation uh, with the landscape, in this case, the sea. And I'll get back to that. <clears throat> but there's one situation globally where lost interconnectedness really becomes a theme in, in, uh, in different culture. And that is in situations of colonization. The incursion of less animist ontologies, less animist realities that dominate, and this can be perhaps Christian or modern uh, cosmologies, that is often perceived as, as a compromising to interconnectedness, for instance, by indigenous groups. 
traditional structures, uh, perception of time, perceptions of subjectivity, agency, epistemology changes or uh, can, can be compromised by colonization. Now, in the Viking Age, I'm just going to show you some images of the Viking Age. Uh, I'm just going to zoom away from the Danish flag. <laughs> in the Viking Age, uh, Scandinavian societies got a very serious sh kind of shake-up. Um, uh, this whole marine technology, it blew the world open in a way that uh, with globalization that not even the Romans, I think, uh, not even on the level of the Romans, actually. Uh, so it was a, a, a time of change. States formed. Economy changed. Actually, uh, anthropology shows that steep rises in co economy can be rather rupturing experience for traditional societies. Uh, uh, and this is, you sometimes see this around the world. I've, I've seen something like this myself in Sudan. That's another story. Um, but this was a period where there were changes that would perhaps make people feel that traditional structure, uh, traditional knowledge forms were threatened. Not the least, of course, because of Christianization that moved in some sort of connection with the European uh, feudal system. Now, according to some scholars, um, in Norway in the 10th century, there was a little bit of a last stand of the heathen aristocratic culture among the earls of Hladir. There are traces in skaldic poetry, I'm told, haven't read it myself, that these people actually uh, self-identified with the word heathen, heathen. Uh, so this was an intellectual milieu there in northern Norway, which was in fact tightly connected to Iceland, uh, and later became uh, as I understand, uh, uh, the, 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 the same milieu that uh, Snorri Sturluson belonged to. Um, and so this was, a, and this was the situation of a lot of upheaval and conflict and instability that was going on in Norway around that time. And in that particular situation, these people must have realized that they could not continue to exist as this uh, aristocratic ruler system, at least, under the heathen worldview. Um, because, because, as you know, Christianity is exclusive. You, you cannot worship he, Odin and also be Christian. And the, the, uh, the feudal, the infrastructure of power in Europe from the south was becoming feudal. If you wanted to intermarry into that and be part of the infrastructure of, of power, you had to become Christian. And they must have realized that. So these were probably people who felt that they saw their, 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 their traditional values threatened or perhaps in, 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 its last, in its last stage. Now, when people feel that, for instance, in situations of colonization, but this is technically not colonization, but uh, I think there's a sim uh, comparable experience, um, what they sometimes react with something called millinerism. Now, millinerism are eschatological movements that grow in situations where groups either see themselves as oppressed or are, in fact, oppressed. 
Uh, traditional life form is threatened or collapsing, uh, and millinerism often grows in groups that are really threatened uh, or perhaps even being destroyed, and millinerisms are rather hectic, serious things. I mean, you might think that these people look like hippies, but they're not. These Mau Mau millinerists, they actually uh, defeated the British Empire and built themselves a state. Uh, and uh, so, so millinerisms are, uh, and, and also a lot of, for instance, violent sects today are millenarian. Al-Qaeda started as a millenarian, ISIS also millenarian. Um, so millinerism is, actually, is a dangerous thing, but also a, uh, often something that creates a lot, or creates new situations. Millinerisms typically envision some sort of revelation uh, and some sort of future transformation, a coming world, typically through some sort of grand end of the world struggle or something like that. The present world is a chaotic prelude of sorts. The world is perceived as unstable and incomprehensible in relation to the traditional order. This, however, will lead to some kind of divine crisis in the order of things, um, which will result in some sort of rebirth of a lost world, right? Uh, and uh, I, perhaps it would have been a little bit more pedagogical of me if I had not, like, shown you images of the, of the, the Ragnarok while I was saying this. Uh, uh, I think perhaps that's the way you're supposed to do. Uh, but my point is basically, I think that the... Uh, the Volsbau, the Volsbau, has aspects of millinerism in it. Probably if Kost Einstein and Preben-Meulengrad are right, because it emerged in this particular historical situation. Um, cool. I'm not sure how much scholarship on the Elder Edda is actually aware of this, in my view, clear millenarian aspect of this, uh, this uh, poem. But uh, often with uh, pre-Christian Nordic religion, I have a feeling that any possible observation has been made and has been refuted and has been re-proposed kind of a couple of times in the last, uh, so somebody might already have, have been on this. Um, cool. Now, there are, is also a set of scholars who believe, as uh, Ole was just saying, that uh, that uh, the Ragnarok and the Volospa might represent a cultural memory of what is sometimes called the Fimbul winter, the archaeological Fimbul winter that happened in this period in the 6th century. Uh, and uh, it is not so far, it's not a very fast span of history, I think, uh, between this, this event and, uh, and the Ragnarok myth. Um, and this Fimbul winter archaeology shows, as I understand, dramatic social collapse in Scandinavia. Um, parts of Norway completely depopulated. Um, the population of Sweden uh, reduced to half. Um, and uh, so, so a very, very uh, catastrophic experience from the social point of view. So if the Verlespa is a... <clears throat> mythic millenarian reflection on lost, lost traditional culture, collapsed relatedness in the world, <clears throat> and in the context of climate change, then I actually think that this is the reason that this particular myth is so extremely um, 
charged or attractive for people in our age. There are so much popular culture that is, seems to be focusing on Ragnarok um, at the Doing With Myth conference that uh, was, was just here. Terry Gonnell, um, the scholar, was talking about different portrayals of Völuspá and Ragnarok that's going on today. It's a lot. It's a, and I think that the reason is that the, the, the modern existence is characterized by some of these rupture, ruptures, and the Ragnarok myth is basically an, uh, uh, an apocalypse of rupture, an apocalypse of lost interconnectedness. Right? Because the pre-Christian Nordic worldview was one, I think, of interconnectedness. I think this image that you sometimes see in Swedish moonstones, with the, here it's actually the tree that's standing in the middle, and you see how it's connected to the, the serpent in later runestones. It will be a cross. Uh, it, it isn't, I think it's a very pungent image of an idea of interconnectedness. The ordered world is actually connected to, dependent on chaos somehow. There's relation between the, the Aesir and the Jötnar. Um, mm -hmm. And this interconnectedness in the, uh, the pre-Christian Nordic uh, world is not, it's not a hippie kumbaya peace and love interconnectedness, as I imagine that a lot of you probably know. It is problematic. Keeping the world together is problematic. The gods and the giants or Jotnar, they're connected in, 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 in so many ways, but there's a lot of tension. You know, there, there is uh, the binding together of, of reality is filled with negotiation and deceit and uh, seduction and coercion, even violence and um, just social contracts of all kinds. And um, the, the, the gods and the Jotnar, they cheat each other quite a lot. I think that, the, uh, that in this reality, there were also different models, actually. Uh, Gevjun, for, oh. for instance, she makes babies with, uh, with Jotnar in order to become that creator god that can create the ordered world, Denmark, out of the Unordered, pre-ordered chaos. Sweden. <laughs> the myth tells how she draws Sealand out of of, uh, of Sweden, but it's a sexual connection that makes her this creator god goddess, right? King Frodi, in also in Sealand, he creates reality by having these Jotnar bound. Uh, they are serfs to him. He abuses them, and that sort of ruptures the connection, and they turn on him and go bad. The god Tyr binds. Fenris, uh, so there's a more aggressive relation going on there. He, he deceives and binds Fenris. Odin kills Ymir and Thor also fights the, the, the Jormungandr. So you see, you can choose to see these different ways of, of relating in this. Games, employment, marriage, sex, descent, identification, and so on. One thing that I think is really important is kinship. Uh, and I think this counts for a lot of uh, polytheist religion, that there's this, this idea that kinship relation is an important metaphor for what keeps things uh, bound together. And hence also the break of kinship uh, becomes um, uh, an overall theme 
in, in myths about uh, collapsing interrelatedness. Um, and I think that the most quintessential break of kinship in the Volusbar is, of course, the fratricide. Herder, I probably didn't pronounce that right, <laughs> uh, kills Balder, right? Uh, and when this quintessential break on kinship, on relation, on connectedness happens, it is as if the world descends into lost connectedness. It unwraps all these strange and multifarious connections between the Aesir and the Jotnar, uh, kind of dissolve, like pulling a string out of a sweater. Uh, and then they end in this cosmic collapse, almost a little bit like Christian angels and demons. They're now in, in absolute confrontation. Uh, the tree burns, and as you probably know, the, the Volusbar is not, it's not like a feel-good message. It's a vision of cosmic collapse and violence and madness and deteriorating norms. And here it would also it would probably be a dramatic effect if I was quoting in Icelandic, but I kind of still feel Snegluhalvi's eyes on me a little bit, so I won't embarrass myself. But as you know, the Jörmungandr, the earth-encircling serpent, rises of the seas to devour the earth and clashes with Thor, uh, the god of the sky, and flames rise as the fire giant consumes the tree of life and human kinship and kindness and decency breaks down and brother will fight brother and be his slayer and axe age, sword age, shield a cleft asunder, a wind age, a wolf age, before the world plunges headlong, no man will spare another. Is Pretty, uh, yeah, some trigger warnings should have gone on the whole thing. In, in the context, I think, of traditional threatened, uh, tr threatened traditional life form and probably the sixth century climate change, can we read the Volospa also as a prophetic voice for our age? You know, prophecies are, by the way, uh, and, and I think as indicated <laughs> by the Norse word spa or spa, uh, they're not necessarily insights in the future. Um, I would see them also uh, uh, as a conceptual play on time, uh, and they mo mostly emerge in the situation where what they're predicting is actually happening, uh, but are then projected back in time. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus foresees the fall of the Temple of Jerusalem, which we use today to date the Gospel of Mark to around 70, which is when the uh, Temple of Jerusalem fall. The Verlusbar probably emerged in this situation of uh, dissolving traditional culture, back-projecting then on a mythic time, the Verlva foreseeing the 9th century, what, what 9th century Norwegians probably saw around them. Um, so... Um, but we live in a time now where, as mentioned, popular culture is strongly drawn to the Volusbar and the Ragnarok. Modernity has ruptured the interconnected cosmology. We do not anymore engage the world as a community of beings whose proper functioning is dependent on our participation in it, at least not in the same way. Uh, rupture has been there for a while, but we are about to suffer the dire consequences or perhaps not uh, us in this room, but perhaps some brown people in a place far away where a couple of degrees uh, temperature rise is going to mean something very different. The world's first climate 
uh, hunger catastrophe has been uh, declared in Madagascar now. It is probably not going to be the last, right? So, uh, so yes, uh, I think there are very good reasons to see the Verlis Bar as, as a voice that makes sense talking to us today. But also, what happens when we take this perspective of lost interconnectedness into other old stories of this kind of animist uh, nature? And I, I, I see this rupture, catastrophe theme in a lot of other stories, also sometimes recovery of lost connection uh, as a theme. And I think this, as, as, can, we can use this as a theme through which we can engage our cultural history. Um, and I will move now to a, a topic that makes me a little bit less vulnerable to Snegler-Halvis' scrutinizing eye here. In a common North European myth, a human marries a sea spirit. Now, in, the, in, in one Danish version, <clears throat> the woman, Aunade, moves, and, uh, as I mentioned before, and marries a, a man at the bottom of the sea, but she deserts the, the mere man. She breaks the bond, the kinship bond, bond, and then he becomes dark and destructive and invokes collapse and madness on human communities, a little bit like Fenya and Menya in the myth of Frodi, the, uh, when uh, Frodi abuses these Yurton women who are driving the, the, the mill, then they, they curse his, uh, his realm. Many myths um, talk about, for instance, churches that are somehow compromising the landscape. There are stones in the landscape that trolls through at the churches when they were built, or the ancient sacred site of Tiso, which is a lake on Sealand, came there as the punishment of a troll that was angry at the church bells. Uh, and and, and there, these kind of myths, um, often a farmer moving through the landscape, that is Agnede, uh, often a farmer moving through the landscape will encounter trolls that are leaving, subjectivity fleeing the land. Again, typically church bells are driving them away. Perhaps they'll, if it's in Denmark, they'll be fleeing to Norway. We imagine that there's a little bit more space and less noisy. Um, and sometimes you also see this rupture being naturalized in Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid, she doesn't become furious and, and takes vengeance of human society for deserting her, uh, but she rather accepts the, uh, the rupture as the natural state of affairs and that she's supposed to be abstracted into transcendent unrelation through this piously unfulfilled tristesse or something like that, <laughs> something like that right? And, and I've become incredibly fascinated by the sort of the animist layers in this image. Uh, and, and the effect this image has on people. If you go out there on a, on, a, on a summer morning, there will be eight tourist bosses looking at that little thing. Uh, and, and I think this is about some of this very strong multi-layered uh, meanings that are there in, in, in this image. That there is a longing of our landscape to become subject by coming back into relation with us. There's also the naturalization that an ideology is not supposed to be like that. She is supposed to just be lonely and sitting out there. Um, and, and, and there's a despair, perhaps, over the loss of relation, which is glossed over by perhaps the modernist non-relational piety, or something like that. Um, sometimes you also see demonization going on in these landscape-relating um, things. 
uh, raven, an incredibly important relation in parts of Scandinavia. Here in the seal of the ancient um, sanctuary of Odense, um, in fairy tales it becomes the apostle of Satan. <laughs> isn't, isn't that extreme? The apostle of Satan. What did the raven do? Its connectedness with humanity is no longer this Hugin and Moonin mind and memory trickster shaman subjectivity connected with, with uh, connection between humanity and, and, and raven, but the connectedness become demonized. There is now a Velraun, a death raven, which is a revenant that uh, a a person bewitched by evil sorcerers that can escape the curse of raven form by drinking the blood of unborn children and stuff like that. So it's a very, very strong uh, demonization that, that uh, ruptures from an animal that used to be perceived in some sort of relating. Right. In some cases, stories actually tell about how to recover connection. A woman breaks her uh, marriage to a bear prince, but must, must go through some sort of shamanic-like quest in order to recover this connection. A woman longing for her lost knight call down the raven in a medieval ballad and ask him to fly with runes to turn the sea so she can bring her knight back into relationship with her. This is recovery of relation. Um, and uh, one of my favorite a woman establishes a harmonious uh, marriage, recovers her spouse by taking a monstrous being through hardcore bedchamber masochist torture. Uh, note, by the way, how this relation-making is problematic. It, it contains dealing with violence and, uh, and, and monstrosity. I recently, by the way, got uh, this image blocked on a social media forum uh, where I had uh, shared it uh, because uh, the people in that forum, they identify as witches. And I, uh, I thought, well, this Im image of female initiatory erotic power, that must be totally their thing. But I, I, they actually found it, uh, this uh, transgressive eroticism provoking. Uh, and I, I sometimes feel that we see some of these rupturing changes going on, even in our own age. I got this image from my sweet and rural church-going grandparents when I was eight years old in, in a little collection of fairy tales. And I think uh, there are changes in subjectivity that goes on where our subjectivity today are, are, are becoming, I would call it brittle, brittle subjectivity. Uh, we react very harshly to... Uh, to, uh, for instance, transgressive stuff, such as, uh, such as, well, apparently transgressive stuff. Cool, so what can we use this whole perspective for? And I think, actually, the, the key word in that question is use. Use, because animism uh, or animist relatedness is very much about doing things. In fact, it's more about the doing than about the talking about and the understanding. Um, and perhaps even the talking about and understanding keeps us in a headspace that perhaps maintains this detachment. Um, 
it is active engaging someone or perhaps engaging something as a someone and then it becomes a someone in the relation. That is actually, I think, what it's about. Subjectivity is relational and Descartes might have been wrong that we are, uh, that we are because we think perhaps we are because we relate. So on that background, I think if you ask uh, an elf in a rock or a, this, these kind of Nisa Veda style beings that you sometimes uh, hear about, if you, if you went and you asked him, what would you prefer? Would you prefer the faith or the food? Then he, he would definitely choose the food. If you ask him, would you rather have a bowl of porridge or would you like me to abstractly believe in that you actually exist, then he would prefer the, uh, the bowl of porridge because ontologically that's actually more defining for his, his uh, uh, being uh, because this embodied relating in exchange, engagement, is, is actually what, what creates this interconnectedness. Uh, and, and I don't find it easy to act on that at all, actually. Uh, but I think we need to do it. Also when it feels awkward and stuff. And when I reached this place in, pre in preparing this lecture, I realized, oh my God, I can't make this conclusion and then, or, and, and then actually not having done it. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I, what I really ought to do is I should open the whole thing by pouring beer on the ground and asking the spirits of Iceland to allow me a voice in this place. But then I was just overwhelmed by this inner modernist judgment, judgment of how pompous, hippie, superficial, self-absorbed and all these kind of things that that would actually be. And I ended up letting that, this, the voice win. I actually didn't, <laughs> didn't do it. Partly also because I, I felt a little bit intimidated by Snake Luhalvi that I'm seeing somewhere around here. But I actually think that this this uh, playful, kind of playful, I should have done it, of course, and reveled a little bit in the awkwardness of this. Um, but I actually think that the, this playfulness and fearlessness and free thinking readiness also to, to feel awkward uh, is something that we should perhaps reach towards through practice like this. Vikings also had an absolutely uh, wonderful uh, concept called finfara which is you go to the Finns, the other, and then you actually learn, uh, you learn knowledge from them. Uh, I did Finfara by going to these uh, South American voodoo uh, people. I think we can learn a lot by these, their counter-modern trickster figure in how to talk, with the, uh, talk and think with these kind of things. The Nigerian, uh, Nigerian uh, thinker called uh, Adebayo Akomolave, he called out at some point to decolonize, not by conforming with purity imaginations of what a true indigenous person might look or sound like, uh, or by erasing us being defined by modernity, but by straying freely and losing our way generously, making kin with the places that hold us. And all this might sound a little bit fluffy. <laughs> I get it, well, perhaps it, it is. Uh, but I'm just going to spit in a couple of examples of how I have been perhaps playfully trying to, to, to work with this. Um, I, uh, in, not in particularly coherent way, but mostly like trying to pull the strings that, that felt like they were available to me. 
one thing is that I, I published a little work on calendar where I sifted through uh, a lot of folklore and, and looked at how do people relate with changing seasons. Um, and, and, and sometimes in, in stunningly beautiful ways that, uh, and, we, and, and a lot of that stuff has, has been, been lost or forgotten or uh, some of it is here in, in ways that change to, to, to stuff that we don't, whose, we, whose beauty we don't necessarily realize today. Um, so that's one thing that I did. Uh, I also tra tried to uh, transfer this um, uh, trickster logic of, the, uh, of these Afro-Brazilians in this calendar by these identifications between deities and Catholic saints uh, seems to me that there are identifications in the Catholic uh, um, liturgical year that are identical to the ways that people in Brazil or Haiti identify their West African deities with Catholic saints. Um, I've also um, uh, tried to trans, uh, trans what? I, I also, what I also tried to do is I actually tried to make a ritual uh, as a cultural event, I, I, I was looking at these, all these um, uh, conclusions, particularly around Christmas, and uh, I, I, I basically said there's a contemporary trend with the so-called campus run from the Alpine area in, in southern Germany is spreading. Why don't we catch this trend a little bit like Halloween has come to Denmark and become a big thing. Why don't we catch this trend but naturalize it into our own North European tradition on all these different strange figures connected with, with, uh, with the Christmas time. In Iceland there's Gryla and uh, there's the one called Thorva as well or, and, 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 and so on. Uh, there's a wide gallery of these carnivalesque dark beings. So we're basically making a, a procession in Copenhagen. We call it the Yule Goat. Um, and um, so this is, you see, it's a, it's a playful way of trying to work with this. This is not about talking about individuation technology and uh, relational ontology and that kind of thing. It's about drinking beers and having a good time and putting on monster masks and running around in town. Um, and, and I, think that's, that, <laughs> I think that's actually the way to do that kind of thing. I also introduced a design of the medieval idea of the raven flag that built on the totemic relatedness between human and raven that you sometimes see in these Iron Age fibulae. Uh, and I, I introduced this as an eco-totemic symbol. This is a symbol of our connectedness with, uh, with the world, basically. Um, and I, I try to use this contemporary trickster, uh, trickster thinking on the national symbols of my own country, actually. Uh, the, 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 the little mermaid and the, the uh, Danish crusader flag, they, I think, emerge in the rejection of animist, uh, animist connectedness that are there in, in the history of earlier symbols, that connection between the the raven flag or the raven banner and, and the Danipal is, is something that I should talk a little bit about if it uh, should hold as a historic observation, but um, it, it's not that simple. Uh, there's there's a, a general a popular myth in Denmark that the Danipal was uh, the old raven 
banner, and that's not that the Raven banner was the original Danish flag, and that's not the case. Uh, but still, when people have this perception, it means that you can you can use this perception to uh, to hack a cultural symbol that has, in a sense, emerged in uh, in reje rejection of connectedness. There are, in fact, links between these two symbols. Uh, and uh, I think that the Danibol white cross does represent a kind of rupture. It is a, a Christian longing away from connectedness towards a transcendent reality that's sort of embodied in that, um, in that symbol. And so this kind of work, I sense that it is, in a sense, predicated in many ways of my reading of the Wörlersbar, actually. It, 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 the Wörlersbar, I think, is the, no, I don't think, it is the ultimate mythic analysis of collapse in Northern Europe of any. Uh, and, um, and I think this is, yeah, that's, uh, and, and I think this is a way, one way to use old stories to inform things that we do in order to uh, promote, uh, in my case, promote the idea of uh, connectedness or create a ritual or um, perhaps being a little bit less of a coward and actually pouring beer on the ground or uh, doing that kind of things. I actually think that's what I had to say. I hope it wasn't too rambly and that... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah.